listening to Nexus Global APM on air, where we bring our listeners the connection between excellence and knowledge. I'm Larry Olson. I'll be your host for this session of APM on air. We have a lubrication subject matter expert as our guest today, and we'll talk about lubrication practices and techniques during post-COVID-19, and you might get a little bit more out of it as well. I'd like to welcome our guest, Mark O'Brien. He is the owner and chief analyst at Tribology Solutions. Mark has a wealth of knowledge and over 30 years experience in the area. Mark, how about give us a little background of yourself and how did you get where you're at today? I took a sales job in 2001 with lubrication engineers, uh, not knowing anything technical about lubricants. But uh, starting right in my orientation week, I became fascinated by the chemistry of it all and how it all affects the machines and the bottom line of a business. And uh, I just can't get enough about learning it. And uh, I just enjoy sharing all that with people and picking up more from them. That's awesome. What a way to get us started into something. So, Mark, as, as lubrication is a key to success of equipment's life cycle, this, in some sense, is taken for granted, and it's viewed as just oil. In many organizations, they don't have programs, or if they do, they're, they're not mature. Can you inform our listeners about why you need a good lubrication program? Well, if you buy machines to make your profits with, it seems so obvious to me, you have to take care of the machine. There can't be any question about that. And you have to learn how to do it efficiently and correctly. And, you know, it's so easy to lengthen a life cycle that's expected and lower the cost to do it if you learn how to do it right. So when when you're talking about doing it right in regards to lubrication, what does doing it right mean? It means buying a quality lubricant and keeping it clean, cool, and dry keeping it from becoming contaminated before you even use it. And there's a lot you can do to machines to help with desiccant breathers and a few other things that they work the way they're supposed to when you don't let them get contaminated. There's a lot to learning how to do that. And that's taken for granted that you don't have to learn anything. You pull a dipstick, you put a funnel in something that's considered good enough Give the new guy the grease gun because it's a messy job. There's a lot to learn, but it's a, it's a return on your investment. It's cheaper to operate correctly than it is by mistake. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you can have some catastrophic failures from all sorts of messes that are caused by lack of or over lubrication or, or improper lubrication. So, you know, in the past couple decades, there's been a term out there called tribology, and maybe others pronounce it differently, has become more and more of a household term in many of the industries where most of them have implemented some form of asset management program. Basically, we're talking about used oil analysis, right? Uh, I remember uh, early on in our conversation, I asked you what UOA was. Well, okay, I understand now, used oil analysis. So with COVID-19 causing these unexpected idle times and some stoppages and across many of the industries, 
What should companies be on the lookout for as it relates to lubrication? Well, there's a lot of precedence for this. In a lot of industries and tasks, they're only occasional. A lot of ag operations, there's machinery used once a year, or there's pumps and motors on standby, and they're used to going out and rotating them and checking on them, maybe pushing a little grease back in. People that have snow removal equipment have to maintain them usually. Uh, The sanders, the belts that feed the spreader spinners, they go out once a month and move them a few feet to rotate the bearings. So you have to do what's always been done for occasional use equipment. It's not a standard procedure because of COVID, but it's the exact same results. You know, it's sitting for a prolonged time. There's so many specific things to different machines and operations But everybody that uses these machines, they know what to do. They just have to have a plan written down and follow it. Exactly. And that's, you know, part of a asset care strategy is to assure not only the maintainers know how to maintain it, but also the operators and anybody who is associated with it. So if we don't do some of these things, what could be an expected result? And when potentially would an organization see the impact of not doing something? You know, it's going to be particular to everybody, but you're going to start rotating barrens that are dry or they got damaged. Uh, Maybe if they had no access to vibration to cause some false brindling, they may have rust on them. There's so many differences. It's hard to pinpoint it as a generalization, really. Right. And are we talking about high-speed equipment or slow-moving equipment? Any equipment. Okay. I mean, it all has lubrication for a reason. But I'd like to get back for something a second ago you mentioned about tribology. Right. I learned that is defined by the science and the study of friction and wear. Now I hear people saying things like, uh, we're going to do tribology is if that's a function of maintenance or we're doing tribology when what they did is they started oil analysis. And there's a big difference. Yeah, so a, a program versus trying to do something or interpretation of a, a word or a buzzword in the industry is quite interesting when you go from one organization to another uh, and, and even listening to technicians and and others talk about, you know, the buzzword of the day is, is right. tribology. Well, what does tribology mean? It's a great word, but if if we're not putting a program around it, it only is a great word and it has no meaning at all. So in your sense, how would you summarize tribology? You know, it's the study of bodies in relative motion, friction, erosion, wear, and or the lubrication thereof. That's how I learned it. Okay, great, great, good stuff. So what would be the best approach to getting the used oil analysis frequency back on track once equipment is back up and running? Considering the situation where, you know, where many samplings may be due and they all come due at once and potentially we're overwhelming the test facility, should a site 
recalibrate or tweak schedules and, you know, what would be the risk? Unless something happened to enter in a, uh, an outrageous amount of some contamination while they were idle, I would just restart the schedule they already had. You know, it's just waiting to go. It, it's, it, it's doing the same as the machines. It's just sitting idle. And it's going to run at the same pace as the machines again. Okay. So would we maybe try to take our, um, you know, risk ranking identification and, and restart the program based on the highest risk of the machines? Or how do you think w would be the best approach? I would think so, yeah. But, you know, I hope before anybody restarts these machines that have been idle for so long, they go around and then start right off the bat with a visual inspection. Hopefully you've got modern style sight glasses. Check them out. Pull dipsticks if that's what you've got. You know, start out with the basics. And if you see anything, then you might call for an immediate test. There's just so many types of machines and fluids and climate conditions. It's got to be specific to the operation. But just get out there and at least look around and see if you see anything abnormal. Right. And, and, and possibly some organizations have a pretty good TPM program in operator care where operators actually, you know, that's a part of their job is to do that initial inspection before you start up. You know, no different than, than what you should be doing with your car. You're, you're checking the oil. You're, ch you're checking all the fluid levels. and Right. If the fuel tank is on empty when you start, uh, you, you have a little bit of a problem. And it's just like the oil tank. If that's on empty when you start, you're not going to notice it at right. startup. But, boy, it's going to be catastrophic when it does catch up with you. Well, it's, it's like truck drivers. You know, besides pulling the oil dipstick, they've got to go around and check all their wheels, maybe check lights. It's a lot better than finding out something's wrong once you get rolling. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So this leads me to ask a question about storage practices. Uh, in my career, I've seen some unbelievable practices, and I'm sure you've seen some too. Pictures are are priceless if we could show them. Uh, can can I'll you? Put, I'll put at least one on LinkedIn when we get done here that I okay. took off of LinkedIn. I wish I could give credit to the guy that posted it, but I forget his name. It's a 55 with the bungs out and a shovel full of sand on top to absorb the sloppy oil. It's one of the worst I've ever seen. It's <laughs> absolutely no insight into contamination. But if you think about it, I don't think anybody would find it a good idea to go over to a fill point and throw a handful of dirt in. But that's just what they're doing. It's the same thing. Goodness sakes. So what, what would your ideal storage facility maybe look like or, or, or feel like if you walked into it? I like the modern, organized, dedicated lube storage rooms. Sometimes they're in a remote, a separate building, like a container that's been converted, or it's just a private room in the facility. And they've got the modern tanks. I prefer the see-through ones. Uh, the metal ones work fine, but I'm lazy and it's so easy to check your level by looking at the whole tank. The whole tank's a sight glass and you put on the uh, 
quick connect ports and desiccant breathers and you filter the oil in and you filter the oil into the machines if you can and everything is color coded you pick a color on say um, a 1540 diesel engine oil and you put a dark green color marker on it well you use the same color lid on the transport jug and the fill point where it goes and it's pretty much eliminates cross-contamination and the closed top jug keeps the dirt out so do the quick connects and it makes a humongous difference taking the contamination away yeah that's great that's good stuff i, I remember uh, when i was back in the industry in the in the early 90s and they were first talking then where i was working uh, about color coding and there was different organizations out there that could set it up for you. And this is the time when we were starting TPM and all that stuff. You know, for, for a mature organization, they understand it. But for someone who's just starting, they really need to, I mean, there's, there's books, there's videos, there's organizations out there that support you. Uh, so there's, there's so many reference and, and resources out there and so many reasons to be doing this from across contamination perspective as well as visual controls talk about poke yoke i call it people keep it simple and and don't make mistakes so there, there's a lot of different references out there for that do you have any one good reference point that you could share with with our listeners learn you know learn. the more i learned about the, how tight the tolerances were on certain pieces of equipment then it all makes sense about the particles. And, you know, when you talk about microns, and basically they claim the human beings can't see anything smaller than 40 microns, and you've got some actuator blocks and different apparatus with tolerances down to one or less, that means the dirt that's flying in the air you can't even see is hurting your equipment if you let it get in there. I learned this after... I was in a shop for a power company where they maintained all the bucket trucks, and it was an impressive shop. It was very clean, very organized. And I'm talking to the boss, and we're watching one of the guys sweep the floor, and a sunbeam was coming in covering a 55-gallon drum that had a purposely made diaper pad for drips, it had two brand new shiny galvanized uh, two quart measure containers, and they looked very impressive until you saw all the dust dropping into them from the guy sweeping the floor, and it was illuminated by the light beam. And it was then it all made sense to me why you had to have closed top jugs. These people were doing the best effort a lot of people knew at the time with those beautiful galvy measures. But with the open top, they were killing the machines without even knowing it. Right. Your aha moment, right, Mark? Yeah. That was my little epiphany is like, oh, now I get it. And I was sold on contamination control and the absolute necessity. And people with a lot more experience than me even took those jugs and put quick connects on them. They didn't even want to take the lid off to refill it because you might get something in there. Interesting. I was in a uh, tortilla factory out in West Texas, and you left with corn dust packed in your nose, ears, your eyes, and all stuck in your hair and all your pockets. So there are instances where it is that bad. 
Exactly. So that's that's shelf life. And the other, I mean, that's contamination. But then there's this other thing called shelf life. I've had people tell me that it's, if it's in a container, not to worry, we're still using it because it's good. Uh, I don't get a warm and fuzzy feeling that the answer, uh, as I think there is some shelf life to consider, and you know, turning turning the cause into what we should say, you know, today it's it's obsolescent lubricant or what do we call it? I, I don't I don't know what the phrase is. There's so many variations in people's advice on this. Every lube company has their own story. Every lube rep has their own story. It gets so involved trying to say this one's good for a year, this for two, this for three, this for one and a half. I'm much more comfortable with what lubrication engineers taught me in the beginning. Don't ask your clients to buy any lubricants they can't use in at least 12 months. You got to draw a line somewhere. You got to make your standard, and that's a fine one, I think. Uh, there's no sense in tying up your money like that anyway. And uh, you don't need it. What are you buying it for? A couple of pennies off on a discount? Rather than try to figure out which each individual product is supposed to be good for and then monitor that, just make it all 12 months as close as you can. Yeah, that's a good advice. So over this last three months, equipment's been idle. And if we use that 12-month theory and, you know, organizations may be using it today, we're looking at out to 15 months. So, you know, there could be a, a three to four month uh, non-usage period in here. Should should they retest some of their oil or is know. it not necessary? You think about uh, the oils not being used either. I mean, I think the worst that can happen if you don't have a good desiccant breather system, you might be ingesting a little moisture from heating and cooling every day, but it's not under load. It's not getting hot. And that's going to be a huge difference. Right, right. Okay, yeah, so there's, there's so much to consider. Yeah, there's so much to consider, you know, when it comes to lubrication, the proper techniques, the proper storage, the contamination, the delivery. Right. It's a science by itself, like you said earlier on. And people take it too much for granted that, you know, one lube is, is a lube. So it, one lube is not a lube. Can you tell me a little bit about grease or, or, or the different oils, in particular grease? You know, you go to the store and you go to the auto store or, or some tractor supply store and they have five different types of grease lube sitting on their shelf. They're out of one. That's the one you need, but you grab another one. What's the potential impact to just grabbing a grease? Well, if they're incompatible chemically, there's a pretty good chance they'll clash. And I'm trying to remember, I think the word might be saponify, where the two base oils in each of the greases, they meet, they don't like each other, so they turn to water and run away. And you end up with a lump of thickener and any contamination that may have been in the system. And this is why I find places where they tell you the grease fittings won't take the grease. The guys are using the regular lever grease guns and they can't get the lever to move. The grease won't go in. Uh, there's a blockage back there from that grease mixture result. And 
You know, I walked into a place in New Hampshire one day on the ocean that received salt and distributed. And I saw seven different tubes of grease on the counter in the workshop. And I said to the guy, do you have any grease fittings that won't take the grease? And he said, how did you know that? I said, because the odds are too good that's going to happen when you're using that many different greases together. Some are compatible. The best thing to do is to research this and know it and know what you can buy. If you're getting it from a distributor, uh, have them extract you and tell you what works and what doesn't. You know, if you're a small operator, say a guy with one truck and a backhoe and you run down to get your parts yourself, you've got to still do your homework and you've got to know, you just can't guess at it because that's how people get problems. You've got to educate yourself. Right, right. Yeah, so this has been a, this has really been an eye-opening for me as well during this, uh, during this podcast here today with you, Mark, and I really appreciate your time and I know you have a passion for it, and I would like for you to share that passion with our listeners as well as uh, everybody else out there. So, Mark, I I really like to thank you for joining us, and we appreciate your insight and wisdom on lubrication here on APM On Air. If any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, how can they go about that? Well, they can go through my LinkedIn account, or they can uh, email me. I use the lowercase word friction followed by the numerals 9111 at Gmail. And I'll be glad to answer any questions and do what I can do. In fact, I just started working with Michael Holloway at Fifth Order Industry offering training for certification for STLE and ICML. That's great. Really great. So our listeners can uh, email you at friction911 at gmail.com. Great, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Mark. Thank you, Larry. If anybody, wishes, yep, if anybody wishes to obtain more information about Nexus Global or our solutions, you can visit our website at www.nexusglobal.com or send an inquiry to info at nexusglobal.com. We encourage you to follow us as thought leaders on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for joining APM On Air and wish everyone a productive and safe day. 